It's good to be here and send you my greetings on behalf of church that I pastor, Grace Reformed Baptist Church, uh, Palmdale, California. We actually meet in Lancaster, and um, a deacon will be leading worship today, and our visiting preacher in California is a pastor from another Reformed Baptist Church in our local association. He'll be praying for us here after it happens. Um, I am here not only because I got invited by my dear friend, your pastor, who I'm working on for you, <laughs> um, but because my church sent me. I go nowhere without my church's permission because they called me to be the minister of Word and Sacrament for them and their benefit, not to travel around the world and do that for others. Anytime I do travel, we have a meeting, we talk about it, and it gets either approved or disapproved. This one got approved. I've been disapproved. No, I haven't been disapproved yet. So it is, it's great to be here. We've been trying to do this for a while. Todd and I have been friends, believe it or not, first time we met, clicked just like that. I've uh, been trying to do it for a while, and this is the first time I was able to, to do this. Kind of a great privilege to be here. If you weren't here in the first hour, you need to go listen to the tape and then hurry up back. It's just, it's all dependent on the first hour. So I have to do first hour stuff in the second hour to make sure I'm ministering uh, for, uh, to everyone. There's a hymn in the Trinity hymn that says, teach me to love thy sacred word and view my savior there. It's a wonderful line. It's packed with inferences and assumptions. The saviors to be seen in the Word, not just the New Testament, but the Old Testament. In 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, we read these words, For I delivered to you as of first importance, but I also received that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Let's pray. Lord, help us to love thy sacred word, to view our Savior there, to be able to connect the dots between the Old Testament and the New Testament better, in order that we might see your great, marvelous plan of the salvation of sinners through the ministry of the incarnate Son of God, who became man for us and for our salvation. Bless now as we consider your word, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. And that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. That's what we're going to be looking at this morning. Paul asserts a truth in the words I just read to you. His assertion is that our Lord's, death, uh, our Lord's third day resurrection is contained somehow and somewhere in the scriptures. I would take this as the Old Testament. It's also contained in, elsewhere in the New Testament as well. Paul, however, is not the only figure in the New Testament to make such a claim. That he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures has other echo, echoing statements, reverberations in the New Testament. Our Lord does that in several places, in various places of the Gospels. Our Lord testifies that he's going to be, uh, he's going to suffer and then he's going to enter into his glory. He's going to suffer and he's going to be raised on the third day. And then one time he even says this, that this resurrection of the incarnate Son of God, according to his human nature, on the third day is actually a doctrine contained in Moses, the, the prophets, and the writings in Luke chapter 24. Those of you that were in the first hour, you know that. The rest of you, I assume, like you have Bibles and you've read it or you've heard something like that before. Jesus says the same thing that Paul says. What's interesting as well about Paul is that if you read the first couple of verses of 1 Corinthians 15, he's telling them, look, I'm going to tell you something I've already told you. And what I already told you, I didn't make it up. I received it. That which I received, I delivered to you. Probably audibly. So whatever he delivered to them audibly in the past, he's going to repeat it now verbally or writtenly 
Is that a word? It is now. Because you guys make up words, like father. Should I go any father? <laughs> Siri, how do you spell that? <laughs> so he received it and had already given it to them audibly. Now he's going to write about the same thing. He received it. It was, I think that's probably the Greek word that Dr. Renan makes a big deal about. It was tradition. It was passed on to him. Somebody told him the third day resurrection is according to the scriptures of the Old Testament. Now, in the first hour, I suggested, well, if you read the book of Acts and you see Paul's conversion in Acts chapter 9, he got thrown down and dealt with by the Lord Jesus. From that point onward, he no longer interpreted the scriptures of the Old Testament like a first century Pharisee. He started interpreting scripture like Augustine and like the authors behind the Apostles' Creed. Like, like a Christian. Um, he not only started interpreting the Old Testament like a Christian, he started inter interpreting the Old Testament like Jesus. What a novel idea. So he got this assertion of truth that he states here, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures from a theological tradition. He didn't make it up. He received it. And in the Gospel of Matthew in various places, it's in the lips of our Lord. And although I don't think the prepositional phrase according to the scriptures um, is connected to our Lord, exactly how Paul says it. He uses a synonym for it. It's in Moses, the writings, and the prophets, which in the first century meant our Old Testament. So Jesus himself taught that the third day resurrection of the incarnate Son of God is contained in the Old Testament. And Jesus didn't teach it because he read the Gospel of Matthew. There's Jesus making a chair and he stops and he reads Matthew's Gospel. Then he goes out in the public and he starts saying what's in Matthew's Gospel. What Jesus said about himself in relation to the Old Testament predates the writing of Matthew, right? Matthew's telling us about this later. Now, when Jesus said it, third day resurrection of the Son of Incarnate Son of God is in Moses, the writings, and the prophets. That's why I think Paul says scriptures. It's just a way, a summarizing uh, way to reduce the three things, Moses, writings, and prophets, into one thing, scriptures. When Jesus said it, was he making it up? They actually don't teach that. I'm here to reinterpret the Old Testament to justify my mission. I'm getting some bad looks. Good. Right. No. Jesus never... He, he didn't read the Old Testament and go, nah. Let's try something new. But these people, they're not going to listen to me unless I say it's grounded in the Old Testament. So I'll just cast new meanings on ancient texts and try to dupe the people. That's not what our Lord did. So even before Jesus said, hey, third day resurrection of the Messiah in, in Moses, the prophets, and the writings, it was already true. He's just interpreting himself. In light of the extant holy scriptures of the day, the then present holy scriptures, what we call our Old Testaments. So Paul received this theological tradition this is going to sound weird, but our Lord, according to his human nature, received the same tradition. Amen. It's in the Old Testament. It's in the Old Testament more than one place. You realize Jesus read the Old Testament? Here's my next question. Did he learn anything when he read it? Like, did his intellect develop and mature? And was he able to take in information and sort it out and, and connect dots? Or did he just have this information dump from heaven? <clears throat> Human nature's full of knowledge. Or was Jesus, according to his very manhood, omniscient? And the answer is, all the Orthodox Christians said, say, no, he wasn't omniscient according to his human nature. Did he learn? Well, he developed in stature, right? Let's just say he was five foot, five and a half. 
Uh, is he five foot five and a half in the womb of the virgin? No. We know that much. He grew in stature, Luke 2.40, Luke 2.52. But he also grew in wisdom. The skillful use of knowledge. Well, if he grew in wisdom, which is a, it's a creaturely thing to grow in wisdom. God just is the wisdom of, of divinity, you know. We can develop and grow in wisdom. Did he develop and grow in knowledge? Did he read the Old Testament and slowly but surely, I don't know how old he was when he, according to his human nature, came to that conclusion. But by the time he's 12, he's going toe-to-toe with the Pharisees at the temple and they're going, who in the world is this? Okay. What would it be like to be sinless the sinless son of God to natures united in one person reading the Old Testament anyway his identity and his vocation his calling who he is and what he was to do it's all the Old Testament and sometimes the New Testament reduces the Old Testament to these two words sufferings and glory or sufferings and be raised on the third day what do you think glory means it's a state of existence that our Lord entered into for us and for our salvation. According to his human nature, on the third day, the resurrection is the beginning of the new creation. And it starts with Jesus. It's pretty important. Sufferings and glory. Uh, sufferings and third day. Where do you get it? The Old Testament. So the New Testament is very clear. We looked in the first hour of uh, several places in the New Testament where it, where it says basically the same thing. That Paul's right. And Paul told us, well, I'm right now because I'm Paul. I got the tradition from somebody else. Peter got the tradition because he announces the same thing, says the same thing. Matthew got it. He says the same thing at least once in his, in his uh, gospel. Jesus said it several times, not always telling us where he got the third day resurrection doctrine from. Sometimes it just sits there by itself. We're going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be spit upon. I'm going to be, you know, this, that, and the other. I'm going to be killed. I'm going to die. I'm going to be buried. And I'm, I'm going to be, I'm going to be raised on the third day. Matter of fact, one time he says, he will be raised. I, he, me, in the future. I will be raised. And then another time in John's gospel, he said, destroy this temple and I will raise it up. Now that's weird. Which one is it? If you're going to be raised, then somebody else is going to raise you. But over here he said, oh, I'm gonna, I'll raise my, uh, you're going to raise yourself up. Which is it? And all God's orthodox Christians said, both. Because we distinguish. Jesus isn't like us. He is very God. And he's very man. And, and it's proper to human nature. Decide to fall out of sin. To, to die. Or to be raised. But God doesn't die. Divinity doesn't die. Divinity doesn't be raised from the dead. Divinity raises humanity from the dead. So when he says. I'll raise it up. He's acting according to his divine nature, or he will. He's going, I will, I will be raised, he's saying with reference to my human nature, I'll be a patient that gets tinkered with by divinity. God is the agent of, of the resurrection. So all that to say, the New Testament is very clear. The Old Testament teaches the third day resurrection of the incarnate Son of God on the third day. So what we're going to do now is we're going to say, okay, where does it do that? We know it does it because Jesus told us in Moses, so the Torah, the law, in the prophets, major and minor prophets, which in the Hebrew canon included some of the historical books, what we usually call the historical books, and the writings, Psalms, Proverbs, Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes, all that stuff. That's the Hebrew threefold canon at the time of the first century. If you want to know why we changed the book orders and how much it, that angers me, we can talk about it later. 
Jesus said this third day resurrection of the incarnate Son of God is in all three portions of the Old Testament. So now we're asking the question, okay, where does it do that? Where does the Old Testament teach the third day resurrection of the incarnate Son of God? By the way, if you think this is just like a connect the dots fun story, this is pretty important because the third day resurrection of the incarnate Son of God is a historical reality promised in the Old Testament. The event happened, Jesus. The writers in the New Testament tell us it happened. But just the words of Paul doesn't explain the theological importance of the resurrection. Here's one of the important things about the resurrection of the Son of God. He's what Paul calls the last Adam. He's representing others. And the resurrection is basically heaven's way of saying, the job's finished. Sins have been taken care of. Righteousness has been earned or gained. Here's the reward. A status, according to human nature, even better than its created status. Because you remember Adam, he could fall. How do we know Adam could fall? Sin. We're here. He did. So the end for human nature is better than the beginning because Jesus <laughs> earns eternal life for us and confers it upon us according to his human nature. So the resurrection in heaven is a way of saying, hey sinners, you want to get to glory? Con get connected to this guy. Because he, he's, he's, he, he's the conductor of the glory train. We got to get on his train to get there. And, and, and Paul says in Hebrews that, that, that God has appointed him to be the agent by which many sons will be brought to the same place. Glory. You want to get to glory? Grab on his robes. Acknowledge your sin, your guilt, your helplessness to change your state from the inside out. And believe the gospel. With a sinful hand, go to Christ. Go guilty. Foul I and fountain fly, wash me, sit here or I die. Don't. That's repentance. Repentance is going, yep, I agree with God. God, I'm, I'm worse than I realize. But your word promises salvation for filthy, guilty sinners like me. Will you have? And Jesus will say, I don't know. How many times do you go to church? If you're a pastor, do you go out of church services to start with? This is a pastor joke. So it's important because he was raised for our justification. It's connected to our justification as well, our eternal life. Glory. Safe present in the safe presence of God, body and soul renovated and brought to a point or a state of existence certainly better than our fallen state but even better than our created state because in glory we can't fall out of it he can't fall out of glory Adam could fall from his created state we can't fall from our glorified state so it's pretty important uh, our, our souls and bodies depend on the theology of the third day resurrection. Now we're not looking at that. Well, we just did, didn't we? Um, we're, we're trying to ask the question, all right, it's very clear. Paul said it, Paul received it, got it from Jesus. The other apostles basically said the same thing. In all the prophets, that's Peter's language in the book of Acts, uh, the third day resurrection is connected to where all the prophets said about Jesus. In all the books, all the books of Moses, all the prophets, all the writings, somehow, some way, somewhere, the third day resurrection of our Lord is there. So what we're gonna do now is we're gonna look at where and how the Old Testament promises the third day resurrection. I'm not gonna look at all the places. I think there's more than one, obviously. Uh, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, plural. So first of all, we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna rely on Jesus a little. You say, well, why don't you just go to the Old Testament? Well, because I'm a Christian. 
I want Christ to help me understand the Old Testament. And he helps us by virtue of the words written in the Gospels. So look at Matthew 12.40. We're going to compare Matthew 12.40 with Jonah 1.17. Or Matthew 12.40 for you on the timeline over here. With Jonah 1.17. Why? Jesus did it. If it's good enough for Jesus, it should be good enough for us. So we're, we're using lordship hermeneutics to understand this issue. We're following the Lord. We're letting the Lord tell us, this is what that means. So here's Jonah 117 uh, first. And then I'm going to read Matthew 12, 38 through 41, and you'll see why. Jonah 117 is this. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the stomach of the fish Three days, three nights. So Jonah, prophet, called by God to preach judgment to people in a city called Nineveh. But Jonah disobeyed the word of the Lord. And as a result, we read about that in Jonah 1.17. Here's what happens to Jonah. He's, he, he disobeys the Lord. So this is a, like a form of spanking. It's a form of judgment uh, in water. Though what's interesting about Jonah, he's, he's in a safe place in the water. While judgment's around him. You ever seen that before? Water, and then something else in the water that's protecting others. This is another, this is, this is a new Genesis 6 through 9. This is a new Noah kind of thing. Noah and his family were in a thing in water, judgment waters. And preserved. And the ark is Christ. Although the Bible doesn't say that. Okay? It does say, and the rock was Christ. Are there other incidents in the Old Testament? This is not good being off the notes. Are there other incidents in the Old Testament where we have a Jonah-like thing? Where we got sin going on around us. We got waters that are potentially, at least with reference to Jonah, going to kill him, judge him. And yet we have a preserving factor in the midst of it. There's at least one more I can think of, and most of you know what it is. If you're not thinking of it, as soon as I tell you, you go, whoa. The word translated, I think, basket or whatever it is, they got it. It was all the old seasoned saints, by the way. Moses, in this basket thing, I think it's the same word translated art elsewhere, in water. While others were dying, he's preserved. Anyway, that's one of my digressions. I don't charge for that. So. But back to this. Our Lord brings Jonah up. So this is pretty important. Here's Matthew 12, 38 to 41. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation prays for a sign, and yet no sign shall be given it but the sign of Jonah. So now he's going back in history, going back to Jonah and saying there's a sign of Jonah that this generation is going to get. For just as, whenever you read this language, just as, in this case it's Jonah, uh, he's going to say, so then, just as Jonah this, so then, in this case, just as Jonah this, so then me. But it's Jonah like on this level of really important stuff. And it's Jesus on this level. It's the language of typology, I think. For just as Jonah has three days and three, Jonah was, three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so shall the Son of Man, man that's a title, Christ appropriated to himself, he didn't make it up. He got it from the Old Testament. Daniel 7. So shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. He's not making up the three days and three nights as well. The men of Nineveh shall stand in this generation at the judgment and shall condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, this is really important right here, something greater than Jonah is here. Remember I said Jonah's level of importance is like on this level and then this thing Jesus he's kind of up there you see it right there 
I'm greater than Jonah. But something in Jonah's experience prefigures my own experience. That's not a prophecy in Jonah 1.17, right? It's not a, thus saith the Lord in the future, the son of David, you know. It's not that. It's a weird experience that a sinful prophet experienced that has some connections with other water-like judgment preservation stuff. Moses? No. So it's not a prophecy. Remember I said we're going to go we're asking the question, where in the Old Testament is the third day resurrection? And how is it presented? Well, this first example isn't prophetic. It is in one sense, okay? Because it is talking about the then present reality of Jonah's experiences, but a escalated experience by somebody in the future. So it is pointing forward in that sense. But again, it's not a prophet saying, thus saith say the Lord, my people Israel, listen. It's what theologians call typology. A person, a place, an event, an institution that is, that is caused by God to come into existence that points to, on a higher or an escalated way, points to a person, a place, an event, an institution, in the future, so that Jonah was imbued with typological or prefigurement, uh, a prefiguring aspect by God in, through the experiences that he experienced. Not by virtue of Jesus say, saying what he said. He didn't become a type when Jesus picked the text out and connected it to him and the generation. He was already a type. You know, types aren't types simply by virtue of the written word of God. Adam, who was a type of him who was to come. Romans 5.14. If this is Genesis and this is Revelation, Romans is way over here. Who wants to say, wow, Jesus became a, uh, Adam became a type of Christ when Paul wrote Romans 5.14. You don't want to say that, right? Well, when did he become a type? When he fell into sin? <coughs> Not a very good type of Christ. Before he fell into sin, that's weird. A before he fell into sin type of Christ? He didn't even fall into sin yet, and he's already a type of Christ? He's a public person, he represents others. He's a sinless son of God in the presence of others, and he's supposed to populate the earth, take dominion, produce seed like him all over the earth. The Lord made the earth to be inhabited with unfallen Adamites, but Adam, of course, sinned. So there we have an example of somebody that's a type, Adam, before the Bible tells us he's a type. So I think this is one of those cases. Our Lord relates Jonah's experience, not his entire experience, but this experience to his being, to our Lord's being buried or in the grave for three days. I think this is a text... That supports the fact that he was buried, according to the scriptures as well, but also the three-day resurrection. The ancient Jews reckoned any part of a day as a full day, so it could say three days, and be a part of one, a whole whole no, whole no, and a part of another, and that's three days, that's the way they reckoned it. Notice where our Lord says this, no sign shall be given it, the then generation living when Jesus was speaking. But the sign of Jonah the prophet. Now what does this mean? I think it's best to take it this way. The sign of Jonah the prophet refers to something about Jonah that signified or prefigured or that typified something about Jesus that will be experienced or fulfilled by Jesus. What is that? Our Lord will be in the grave for three days, but notice the last words of this text. And behold, we made something of this, but we're going to do it again. Something greater than Jonah is here. Our Lord's like Jonah, but unlike Jonah. Our Lord's like Adam, but unlike Adam. Greater, but like, and unlike. And by the way, when our Lord comes
comes on the scene, suffers, enters into his glory. God raises up apostles and apostolic men to tell us it happened, the Gospels. Tell us that the apostles got it and started proclaiming it, and churches were born, the Acts. And explain some of the theological entailments of the sufferings and glory of Christ, the epistles. Um, when all that happens, then we're going, oh, Adam was a type of Christ. Adam's typological function that was obscure and not real clear, but there becomes clearer after his antitype, his fulfillment comes. Right? Well, if you don't agree with me, that's fine, but I think you'll, if you start reading the Bible that way, this way, going, okay, the New Testament's about the fulfillment of the promises. When fulfillment comes, promises that were obscure become clearer. Shadows that have their substance revealed, we're able to say, oh, that was the shadow of my wife. Initially, I couldn't, I just knew it was a shadow. But then when I walk around the tree or whatever, it goes, hey, honey, the shadow means more now. Same thing with Jonah. When that to which Jonah, as a type, comes on the scene of the world, and then he's confirmed to be that by the written word of God, Jonah, as a type, becomes clearer to us as a type. This thing, uh, something greater than Jonah is here. Our, our Lord's like and unlike Jonah. He's much greater than Jonah. So we can say Jonah was a type of Christ. Um, and I could quote somebody, but I'm not going to. So that's one text. We usually finish at 11. I don't know. It's, Twelve. That says eleven. That's not right. So, so right now it's eleven thirty. Great. <laughs> According to the scriptures, plural. We just looked at one. Jonah. Why? Jesus gave us a, 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 an interpretive hint. We ought to go to Jonah. There are other passages, more than one. But I want to quickly look at Genesis twenty-two. So if you have a Bible, you can turn there. <clears throat> I want to quote this theological dictionary. Nobody told me what time you usually finish. Are you going to tell me? 12.15? I'm not going to 12.30. I'm hungry. So Genesis 22, listen to this, what this guy says. From the Greek word typology or type. From the Greek word for form or pattern, which in biblical times denoted both the original model and the copy that resulted from it. So you have the first thing and then something other than it. The author gives us, as an example, Adam and Christ, Romans 5.14, type and antitype. He says further, there are several categories. Persons, Adam, Melchizedek, events, flood. says the flood is both a flood and a type of something. Brazen serpent. John, John 3. Institutions, feasts, places, Jerusalem, Zion. Objects, altar of burnt offering, incense. Offices, prophets, priests, kings. Prophets, priests, Places. Does anybody know uh, uh, Mount Moriah, Genesis 22? You know what the ancient Jews and Christians believed uh, was was built on Mount Moriah? You ever heard the phrase Temple Mount? When I first figured that out from real old readers, I'm going, what, what's going on here? Abraham's going to offer his beloved son on Jerusalem at the temple? I mean, it's, it's just not that yet, but it became that. Something, something greater than Isaac has come. All the old commentators worth reading here and saying, this Isaac was a type of Christ. They got to help 
from the author of the Hebrews, the author of Hebrews, we'll look at it in a second. And all God's people know that the author of Hebrews is ultimately God through the apostle Paul. Okay, so let's keep going. This, this guy, the, the author argues that there are patterns in Scripture of God revealing events, institutions, places, objects, and or offices as things which prefigure future things. So it's the divine providential act that produces the creaturely thing, the person, the place, the institution, the event, sometimes the number, numbers can do that. It's the divine act of imbuing those things with typological meaning, not the scriptures themselves, but it's providence. It's God doing it. This is clearly seen in Adam and Christ, but something is interesting in the relationship between the first and the last Adams. The last Adam, our Lord Jesus Christ, is better than the first Adam. He is like and unlike him. So we could say this, types are lesser than that to which they point. Jonah's down here, Jesus is over here. Adam's a real type, but Jesus is much better. Keep that in mind as we look at Genesis 22. I suggest to you that this passage from the Old Testament prefigures aspects, not all of it, but aspects of our Lord's experience and is related to his third day resurrection, or in the words of John Gill, the deliverance of Isaac when his father received him in a figure as from the dead. Gill is paraphrasing Hebrews 11, where we read in Hebrews 11, 17 through 19, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, in Isaac your descendant shall be called. He considered that God is able to raise men even from the dead from which he also received him back as a tithe. This is Cyril of Alexandria. This is around 400 AD. He says, The mystery regarding our Savior is prefigured through these matters. Genesis 22. Now, we're gonna, I'm going to read through Genesis 22, 1 through 14, and I'm going to infuse comments by John Gill. I could have gotten from somebody else as long as they lived before the 18th century. Because they all said the same thing about Genesis 22. And by the way, I bet you have... I bet we have hymns in the hymnal that reflect a typological understanding of Isaac. The, the, the hermeneutic required to produce our hymnal, it's not what I got taught. The hermeneutic required to produce our hymnal is the same hermeneutic that produced the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Chalcedonian Statement, Athanasian, Westminster Confession, and our own confession. So here's John Gill helping us understand Genesis. This is not good. If my wife was here, she'd say, take that pencil out of your shirt or take your glasses off because you're distracting us. <laughs> I would probably tell her, honey, don't look behind the curtain. <laughs> so I, I found this fascinating. Hopefully this is helpful to you. So here we go. Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. Never heard that before? It's going to be in the text again. It's in, a, in the Old Testament law. And he said, take now your son, your only son. How does Paul interpret this? Your only begotten son. Uh, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah. Here's Gil, the hill country of the land of Canaan, particularly that part of it where Jerusalem afterwards stood. And offer him there as a burnt offering is one of the mountain on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. If this was my church and I looked up, I'd get a bunch of eyes going, Pastor, it said mountains. Mountains are important in the Bible. Uh, what's the first mountain that's important in the Bible? Mount Eden. It had rivers flowing out of it, right? Which means they, the water goes down. So Eden was up. It was the first 
sanctuary of God. One of the prophets uses that language, looking back, evoking Eden. It was the first special dwelling place of God among men on the earth. And that's just the definition of a temple. Okay, So mountain, uh, of which I will tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him. I'm just suggesting that I bet some older commentators are going, wait a minute, the guy that's going to be sacrificed has two other young men with him? You ever seen the Alistair Begg thing? Where he says he's doing the, the thief on the cross and somebody asks him, uh, what do you think you're doing? You're believing Christ. What gave you warrant to get saved on the cross? And he's on the outside, Jesus is in the middle, and he says, the guy in the middle said I could come. I bet you somebody says, see the other two, they represent the guys on either side of the cross. I'm just suggesting I'm not preaching that, okay? And Isaac, his son, and he split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him on the here it is. Uh, I don't know how many times the Old Testament says on the third day. Here's one time. Watch what these old guys are going to say when they comment on it. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. Here's Gil. The Jews take great notice of this third day and compare the passage with Hosea 6.2. I have notes on that. We're not going to go there. That's a weird text because it's a third day national resurrection text which all the pre-critical all the before the enlightenment Christian interpreters said that's the resurrection of the son of God on the third day but it's a national text it's a corporate Israel resurrection text I just said we weren't going to go there and I went there and which they interpret the Jews intertestamental Jews is what I, who I think he's talking about. Before Jesus, before the New Testament, Jews were interpreting the Old Testament and they knew the third day was important and they connected it sometimes with the Messiah. Isn't that weird? I mean, it's not weird. Weird in a good way. In which they interpret on the third day of the resurrection and the deliverance of Isaac. Now he's leaving Hosea and going back to Isaac. On this third day was doubtless typical of Christ's resurrection from the dead. On the third day, for from the time that Abraham had commanded to offer up his son, he was reckoned no, no other by him than one dead. From whence he received him in a figure on the third day, Hebrews 11, 19. Verse 5. And Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. And I and the lad will go yonder. Here's a donkey in relate, related to a type of Christ. When Jesus comes on the scene, is there donkeys at all? I wonder if there's a connection. It probably is. Uh, but that's a suggestion. I'm not proclaiming that. Okay. And we will worship and return to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, here's Gil, who was a grown man and able to carry it. In this also, he was a type of Christ on whom the wood of his cross was laid. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife, so the two of them walked on together. And Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. And he said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. Here's Gil. In which answer, Abraham may have, res may have respect to the Messiah, the lamb of God. So the two of them walked on together. Verse 9. Then they came to the place of which God had told him. And Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Here's Gil. In which he also was a type of Christ who acquiesced in the will of his father. Verse 10. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, we know what he said. Here I am. And he said, do not stretch out your hand against the lad. 
and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Here's guilt. Abraham loved the Lord more than he did his son and had a greater regard to the command of God than to the life of his son and preferred the one to the other. And thus God spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. So types are like and unlike. He didn't die, but the Lord does for us. uh, 13. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked and behold him. Behold. Excuse me. And behold, behind him, a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. Here's Gil. This ram was in an extraordinary manner provided and was a type of our Lord Jesus, who came into the world in an uncommon way, being born of a virgin. Amen. We don't have to agree with all his connections. Somebody just said amen, so they did. But he's on to something, right? It's like, if you know if you're... The more biblene your blood is, the more this, the easier it is to, to stomach this. That doesn't sound good. Uh, the easier it is to see these things. You'll have, you have aha moments. The, the more you're steeped in the language of both the Old and the New Testament, oh, I've read that 33 times. I didn't see that. What changed? God? Nope. Text? Nope. Me. I changed. I got more information. I got help from my pastor. They helped me see things. I contemplated the words I was singing in the hymn in the hymns this morning and I was able through that less lesser authority a hymnal I was able to understand the Bible better we change uh, where am I verse 16 yes and Abraham called the name of the place this is this is this is interesting. The Lord will provide. Jehovah Jireh, he says, this is guilt. As he has provided a ram in the room of Isaac, so he has provided and will send his only son in the fullness of time to be a sacrifice for the sins of his people. Back to the Genesis text. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, uh, the translation is, it will be provided. Here's guilt. Some choose to render the words, in the mount of the Lord, in the mount, the Lord shall be seen. Now, some of you might know John Gill enough. He just doesn't pull rabbits out of his hat. This guy quotes intertestamental Jews. I don't know if he quotes Syriac, but he quotes, uh, it's obvious John Gill read a lot. I mean, if you've seen pictures of him, it explains why he looks that way, I guess. This is like one of the Mount Everest guys throughout the history of the church. Certainly among Baptists, as an interpreter of Holy Scripture, when he says, hey, there's some people render it this way. The mount, in the mount, the Lord shall be seen. God, manifest in the flesh, this is Gil, the Emmanuel, God with us, who is frequently in the temple built on this mount. When he said destroy this temple and Three days, I'll raise it up. And he was at the temple, which is, according to tradition, where this was taking place. And often seen there in this state of humiliation on earth. Let's back up and listen to some other commentators, uh, older ones, on this passage. Commenting on verse 4, on the third day, here's Matthew Poole. So just just behind uh, John Gill on the timeline. So that it might be a type of Christ the number three is most celebrated in the scripture. And concerning this, thus the rabbis in Bereshit Rabbah, that's an ancient Jewish commentary on Genesis. He said, and thus the rabbis see it this way. There are many uh, three days in the scripture, among which one is the day of the resurrection of Messiah. That's Ainsworth, you don't have to know who he is. Here's John Trapp, he's another 17th century British commentator on verse 6. And laid it upon Isaac, his son, who is herein, a lively type of Christ, bearing the cross, 
whereon he was offered up. Here's a man named Reve on Genesis 22, 8. God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. He says, and Christ is called a lamb. Here is Matthew Poole again on Genesis 22, 8. In these things also Isaac was a type of Christ, one that he was offered on Mount Moriah, understood by ancient Jews and Christians as what we call the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Two, that he was on, that it was on the third day. Three, that he he that he he excuse me. Three, that he first bore the wood, then the wood bore him. Mm -hmm. That'll preach. Yeah. Four. That, that's how I determine whether or not I believe it. If it preaches well, I believe it. <laughs> Number four, that he was bound with respects to his hands and feet. That's somebody else saying that. So. Let's draw some sort of a contemplative conclusion. First of all, many places in the New Testament we are, we are assured that our Lord rose from the dead on the third day. He died, he was buried, he rose. Okay, the, the New Testament attests to the third day resurrection. But also, Paul, Jesus, and other New Testament persons assert that this third day resurrection, an actual historical accomplishment, this third day resurrection of our Lord was actually promised in the scriptures, plural of the Old Testament. Also, when we go to the Old Testament, we find that the third day resurrection of our Lord is found couched in what we call typology. Isaac, I would also offer, offer, offer Israel as well, but Jonah, Isaac and Jonah are the only two we looked at. Those seem to be clear to me. So this teaches at least four things, and I am finishing before 1230. What the Old Testament promised concerning the Savior of sinners, our Lord fulfills. This, Jesus, is that. The whole Old Testament is a slow but sure unfolding of the seed promise of the skull-crushing seed of the woman, and it stops. And then there's those silent years. That's where these Jews that, that were trying to find and connect dots, that's when they were doing that in the silent years. When Jesus comes on the scene, the language of announcement is this. In the fullness of time, God did what he said he was going to do. He sent forth his son. Born of a woman, he assumed our nature. Born under the law, he assumed our duties. In order that he might redeem, he assumed our liabilities. Why? In order to bring us to God. So what the Old Testament promised is fulfilled by virtue of what our Lord does. Also, various aspects of the experiences of Isaac and Jonah typify our Lord's third day resurrection. So one thing we learn from this is that things may function as types without the Bible explicitly identifying them as types. Jesus doesn't say, Jonah's a type. But Jesus does say Jonah's a type. But he doesn't use the word. So types can be types without the Bible identifying them as types. And then third, New the New Testament is God's record of and commentary concerning our Lord Jesus Christ in his sufferings and glory as those acts relate to what the Old Testament predicted concerning him. You know what the New Testament is? It's basically commenting, narrating the acts of the incarnate Son of God but also doing theology based on the, the sufferings and glory of Christ as these relate to the Old Testament. So, and you close this, and I have six and a half minutes left. So, what if you're here and you're just going, I'm glad you're not going to 1230. The event of the third day resurrection was was promised in the Old Testament in at least two texts. The event promised in the Old Testament has occurred, but when events are, that are both promised and they occur, he did. Is risen, you know, on the third day. 
The event itself, like if we were witnesses of it, we would see it, but we wouldn't understand all of its pregnant meaning. And we dare not put our own meaning on the event of the resurrection. We need God to tell us, what in the world does this mean? What's the significance of the incarnate Son of God suffering and then entering his, into his glory, being raised from the dead on the third day? Well, he's like Adam, but not like Adam. He represents others like Adam did, but he didn't fail. He had to assume their nature, to assume their duties, and assume their liabilities. Why did he have to assume their duties? Because we're not very duty, dutiful. We all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We sin, we transgress. We don't do what God requires, and we do what he forbids. Way more than we feel comfortable with and are conscious of. Why did he assume our liabilities? God is just, he'll punish sin. He assumed our guilt, the just liability unto punishment, and he was punished. Why did he rise from the dead? It was a reward for his obedience. And that which God has done for the mediator, he'll do for everybody connected to the mediator. That means it really theologically important. Because without him, we're goners. We're toast. With him, we're going to glory. Now I have one more suggestion, because it's only 12.26. <laughs> you know how Paul, at the end of Ephesians, does the marriage thing? And then he cites Genesis 2, is it 24, I think it is? Uh, the two shall become one, the Adam and Eve text. He cites it. And he says, this mystery of grace is great, but I'm speaking of Christ in the church. So he goes before the fall into sin, and he utilizes the institution of marriage before the fall into sin, and he basically says, it prefigures a, a redemptive reality. Now, we struggle with that. Well, before the fall into sin, God is prefiguring redemptive realities. Adam, who was a type of him who was to come. So he does it with Adam. Could he do it with marriage? That would make um, Adam a type of Christ and Eve a type of all. And all the old commentators said, the church. It seems like that's what Paul is doing. Now, you can turn there if you like. If you don't want to turn there, you don't have to. But I want to read two texts and then I'm, then I'm done. Well, I, I'll try to be done. You remember when our Lord in John chapter 12, he says this, it's about himself, and it has something to do with the resurrection. It's verse 24. Well, verse 23 says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains by him, by him by itself alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Charles Wesley wrote that hymn probably based on at least this verse. Now listen. Then God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit after their kind with seed in them on the earth, and it was so. And the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed after their kind, and trees bearing fruit with seed in them after their kind, and God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, and all of God's people said, a third day. Isn't that weird? In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul uses the same plant analogy language. First fruits Jesus' resurrection is the first fruits. Could it be? Just a suggestion. Not preaching. So I'm already done. Could it be that God infused and imbued the created order with things that actually looked to the redemptive, redeemed order, but we don't know that until a fall happens and God tells us in his word that, oh, by the way, I was planning some things. <clears throat> 
before the fall of the sin. I think it could be. And of course, when I say I think it could be, it probably means I think it is. And I know a lot of the most more faithful commentators in the past did. So believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. 1229, I win. I am self-controlled. I stop before 1230. That's right. We thank you, Lord. We pray that anything that's not true to the intent uh, uh, of your word, you blow it out of our memories and the rest of it, you would stick it deeply in our heads and hearts. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.